Well, we saw last Sunday the artful way that Jesus trains his disciples. And we went through the scripture so that we would have no mistake in seeing who the real biblical Jesus is. Well, today we're going to get a glimpse of Jesus' physical glory in yet another way and see how Jesus shores up his disciples for the coming persecution. So in Luke chapter 9, we're going to start with verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what advantage is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. So this is a pretty heavy statement. What does it all mean? Well, the cross. What was the cross? Back then, it was a form of execution. It was inhumane. Certainly, the ACLU would have had a field day with that form of uh, execution. It was humiliating, and it was torturous. And it was used by many civilizations prior to the Romans as a form of capital punishment. But the Romans developed it into a torturous science. What happened was the victim was beaten. They would take these uh, leather, you know, pieces of leather, uh, thongs, and they would attach it to a handle, and they would put sheep, pieces of sheep bone and, uh, you know, little pieces of stone, and they would whip their, their victims. They would tie them to a post and whip them on the back and pretty much open up the skin to the point where the muscle would be showing, and then they would dig into the muscle, and it would just be a bloody mess at that point. And then what they would do is they would... Take the, and I have to kind of explain this a little bit because there are some groups out there that don't believe that Jesus died on a cross. Well, think about your business and maybe some of the policies and procedures that you have where you work. Everybody has policies and procedures, be it for petty cash or whatever. The Romans practically had a policy and procedure for crucifixion. There was a certain way that they did crucifixion day after day after day. And there's actually a name for both of the pieces of that cross. There was the vertical piece, which was called the stipes, which was about 200 pounds, which which stayed at the site of where the person would be crucified. And then there would be the the portion called the patabolum, which was the horizontal piece, which weighed about anywhere between 75 and 100, 125 pounds. And after the victim was beat, they would uh, tie his wrist to the patabolum and rest it on the nape of his neck which really wasn't a very hard thing to carry, except in Jesus' account, they beat him so bad that he needed help carrying that top piece. So the person would carry the patabolum like this on the nape of their neck up to the, the place where they were going to be crucified. And then what would happen, they would throw you on the ground, tie the two pieces together, and then hoist you up. And at that point, the victim would die of exhaustion, asphyxia, and hypovolemic shock, which are just medical terms for a loss of blood, and pretty much suffocation. And this would take long, agonizing hours of pain. And after the death, the body was usually left to decompose out in the open, and it would be eaten by scavengers. They would pick apart the body. And there was a reason for this, because they wanted people to understand, don't mess with the Romans. It was was supposedly a crime deterrent. And sometimes they would even have them across the roadway so people could be reminded of the Roman power. And this type of punishment was not for women or Roman citizens. It was reserved for slaves or the worst types of criminals. Now, crucifixion was not spoken of in polite circles. That's like if I had you over from my house for dinner and we started talking about different things, and I said, hey, let's talk about torture. It kind of really wouldn't be appropriate. So, you know, we we talk about it now. People wear the the emblems of, of the cross, but we really don't get the full picture of what crucifixion was like. So then the question goes, why would Jesus want this for his followers, or would he? Well, not really necessarily that he's saying he wants all of his followers to be crucified, but more of an identifying with him. Although when the persecution came, many of his followers died in like manner. Now, obviously it can't be literal because he he says to take up your cross daily. Well, the statistics show that every person who got crucified for the first time, they died. They didn't make it to the second time. So you couldn't do it daily. But he says here, deny yourself. Now, I believe that most Christians don't understand this concept. 
we all want to receive the Lord and we all say we want to be a Christian and we want to serve the Lord, but we have stipulations. Well, as long as it doesn't affect my vacation time, as long as it doesn't affect my kids' schedules. We have kids in, and my kids in karate, you know, we have kids in karate and soccer and t-ball and b-ball and z-ball and everything. Our kids are kung fu masters and they're adept in, in, the, in all the sports, but where are they spiritually? Do we teach them scriptures? Do they know the Bible stories? Because if not, that's a problem. Uh, because, you know, those kids that we have are God's kids before they're our kids. Our kids are only on loan to us from the Lord Almighty. Think about that. And he's going to hold us accountable for what we teach our children. But as long as it doesn't interfere with my personal lifestyle, or I don't have to make a commitment, or until it becomes unpopular and I get guff from my family and friends and my employees. You know, we have all these stipulations. Now, we can't speak of denying ourselves until we understand what does self mean. Let's explore that. On the one extreme, the world thinks that self is a good thing. There's self magazine out there. There's all these books written on self-esteem and how to boost it. And we live in a basically self-centered society. And you know what? Some of this poison has infiltrated the church. But then, on the other hand, some take denying yourself to an extreme. I like to cover the both extremes and then explain what it really means. There's actually people who, a bunch of men get together and they cloister themselves and they go up to the mountains and they flagellate themselves, they whip themselves, and they think that this is the way that they can deny themselves. But how, is people, how are people going to receive the Lord from people who do that? They're going to think Christians are kooky, Right. So, you know, it's kind of weird, but the whole thing is a matter of perspective, because if you think about it from birth, right, our best perspective is from the day we were born is we always look out for number one. Who's number one? Ourselves, if we're honest with each other. Every day when you wake up and you go to the bathroom and you look in the mirror, you're the first person you see, and you're usually the last person you see. And if you have a lot of mirrors, you probably see yourself often and probably like what you see. (laughs) But I spend more, some people laughing and nudging each other. Oh, I got a few vain people in the audience. (laughs) But, you know, I spend more time with myself than any other person on the planet because I'm confined to myself, right? It's just logical. There was actually a song when I was a kid. I used to watch uh, Sesame Street and uh, Electric Company over and over and over again. And there was this song that I'll never forget. It's been decades and it's still burned in my brain. It goes like this. Tell me I'm not the only one who's heard this song. It goes, the most important person in the whole wide world is you and you didn't even know it. Whoever heard that song? Say a lot of you. Like we need to teach little self-centered kids to be more self-centered, right? You think I'd make the worship team? There's some things even senior pastors can't do. So uh, it's not a natural thing to see people from other people's to see other people's perspectives. When you have an argument with someone, who's always right? You, of course. Why can't they see what I'm telling them? You think that you're right, right? If you have an argument with your spouse, the wife will say, you're so selfish. And the husband will say, you're so selfish. The truth is, you're both right. You're both so selfish. We're sinners. You know, I, at home, I try to use the, the excuse. I say, you know, I am the senior pastor. God anointed me. It doesn't fly too much, though, in my house. I don't know why. <laughs> so, But anyway, many years ago, before I was a Christian, I remember this. I didn't see the movie. I saw a clip of the movie, and I understood what the theme of the movie was. But I just remember one particular scene. It was about a guy who was a womanizer, a real jerk, always trying to hit on women, you know, um, that type of guy. And he somehow he ends up being cursed. And he wakes up the next morning and he has a man's thoughts and a man's voice and he looks in the mirror and he's a woman. He gets cursed and and finds out when he wakes up in the morning, looks in the mirror, it's a curvaceous woman. And he's shocked. Now he has to go through life seeing the perspective of what a woman goes through and dealing with men who were, you know, boorish behavior, these these idiotic guys that he was. So it kind of gives him the perspective of another person that he never had that perspective before. But even on Father's Day, Dad, do we expect special treatment today? Come on, be honest. (laughs) Some honest people, this is good. Confession is good for the soul. (laughs) How 
How many more of you, though, are concerned with your family first? I got to tell you, when I'm walking in the spirit, that was a trap, by the way. So when I'm walking in the spirit and I walk past the kitchen sink, uh, we don't have a dishwasher. Actually, we do. She's about five foot nine, blonde hair and green eyes. Real beautiful dishwasher. But when I'm walking in the spirit, I walk by the, you know, the sink and there's dishes in there and I do the dishes. And if I'm really walking in the spirit, I don't remind my wife when she comes home, honey, I did the dishes for you. <laughs> I just do it and I don't look for, you know, and it, it's to hold that in is tough because I'm self-centered because I want my wife to see I did something for her. So when I talk about self, look, I'm going to be hard on the people who are listening, but it's, it also goes to me, obviously. I, I could learn from this lesson, too. But we can't talk about self without talking about the sin of self-righteousness. I want to read a scripture that is always applicable. It's going to be Luke 18, 9 through 14. Turn to Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One guy is a, a well-respected man of the community, and the one guy is, is on the other end, a well-despised man of the community. The Pharisee stood and praised thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteousness is bad because it's rooted in pride, and we know what God thinks about pride. And you actually are worse than the people you look down on. You look down on people so much that, you know, it's pretty bad. Everybody who's struggling, you've got something negative to say about them. I actually was talking to somebody not too long ago who had things to say about their spouse, had things to say about the people in the neighborhood, things to say about people struggling with certain sins, but they thought that they were okay before God. How blind, how tragic, a person who doesn't see themselves. People eventually, with this type of person, will withdraw from them because they end up believing their own propaganda. And people don't like really self-centered people. It's just a natural thing that we, we're repulsed by. Even in the world, um, that American Idol. A lot of times, I know, there's a lot of American Idol junkies, I'm sure. But people even vote those people off the show when they're arrogant about their abilities. They're like, oh, that person, they're all stuck on themselves, and they vote them off the show. So people don't like that. But in verse 23, Jesus makes a conditional statement. He starts with if. You know, he says that if anyone desires to come after me, then this is what you do. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So it's a conditional statement. If you desire to follow the Lord, then there's a price to pay. You have to count the costs. There's costs of friendships, costs of habits or addictions, Cost of finances. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you could be a businessman who is used to, you know, not really ripping people off, but, you know, getting a little extra and doing really well because you kind of make people think that the job is worth more than it is. And then you become a Christian and you want to do things right. Now you're going to lose money because you're going to be honest with people. So there, there's, there's, you can count the cost of things that you'll lose when you follow Jesus Christ. Status, especially if you're in the world. If you're in the political arena if, and you have status, once you start really going, being on fire for the Lord, people are really not going to want to hear that. They're going to want to talk about the agenda of where the world is going. Just leave that Jesus stuff at home. You're going to become an irritant to people. Uh, health, etc. And in verse 24, you make a choice what you want to do with your life. Jesus says you could save it. It's an attitude of your life belongs to you and you make all the decisions. You've heard that phrase, you are the master of your own destiny. You could do that. That's a choice that you can make. Or you can choose to put your life in the Lord's hands and live according to his instructions and his examples. Trust his direction. 
Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. There's a bonus there. See, you give away your life, but you get it back. You get it back eternally. And John 10 tells us you get it back abundantly. There's there's a, a rate of return on your investment. The last thing I want to say about selfishness before moving on is this. It's hard for selfish people to follow Jesus because selfishness is rooted in the works of the flesh. Turn with me to Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Start taking these apart. Adultery is rooted in selfishness. You really think you have such a high opinion of yourself that you move on to another person besides your spouse. Fornication. You can't wait. You know, you want what you want. You want it now. Can't wait to get married. Uh, Uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry. You know, God's not doing it fast enough. What what is God, what is he doing? He's he's waiting too long. I mean, I've asked him for something. When's he going to deliver? Idolatry. You start moving on to other things that are going to, that you think are going to help you out. Sorcery. Uh, In the Greek, the word is pharmakia, which is where we get pharmacy from. That's drug abuse. And we talk about drunkenness, too. Drug abuse and drunkenness. Well, I want to medicate myself. You're not thinking about your family. You don't care about your family. You need, to, you need the drugs. You need the booze because you want to feel better. It's rooted in selfishness. Hatred, you know, contentions, jealousies. Well, somebody else has something that I want. Selfishness. They're all rooted in selfishness. Out, outbursts of wrath. Think about road rage. You know, you... Somebody's not turning quick enough, or the light turns green and they didn't go quick enough. Maybe they have a Hyundai. But whatever it is, <laughs> quarter mile in 15 minutes. But, you know, you, you see, and I, and I see even, even, you know, teenagers, young girls, they're like, yeah, shaking their hands. Everybody's crazy on the road today. They're so angry. But, see, I don't get upset because when I put on that uniform, I could just write them tickets. So I have an outlet. But, okay, Galatians 5.19. It basically says that, you know, all this stuff is rooted in selfishness. Selflessness and the fruits in the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, on the other hand, go hand in hand. Now, in verse 25, he says, For what advantage of it is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? In verse 25, I'm reminded of Solomon. Remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes? He mused. He said, you know, I've amassed so much wealth and so much achievements. And he's starting to think within himself, well, what if the guy after me, what if my son is basically an idiot and he squanders it all? He was concerned about what was going to happen to his fortune when he died. Well, you can't take it with you. So who cares what happens to it when you die? But Solomon mused all these things about his fortunes and what would happen to him. Worse yet... There's people, and they exist, who say, I don't really care if I go to hell. I want to get as much as I can now. I want it now. It's even more tragic when people who are young, when people in their 20s say something like that, and their life is cut short. There's a, a um, a parable, Luke 12. Go to Luke 12, 16 through 21. Luke 12, 16 through 21. It's the parable of the rich fool. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yield plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And again, it's not money that's evil, but it's the love of money. I'm just going to go back and forth a little bit. First Timothy 610 says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. It's a real blessing. What's really a blessing is a rich man whose heart is moved 
to further the cause of Christ. Because God knows that there's too many rich and powerful who are trying to destroy the cause of Christ. But going back to people who are young and are saying, well, I don't really care. I'm going to get as much as I can in this world because I'm going to enjoy it now. And it doesn't matter if I go to hell. Well, here's the problem with that. And I'll put on my other hat as a police officer. Uh, you know, people, a lot of people die of, of an old age. It's just, you know, it's a natural thing, natural causes. But the accidents that I go to and the overdoses that I go to and the, you know, industrial accidents, there's many, many people every year that die in South Brunswick Township. And that's just one township. Multiply that by all the townships in the world. Okay? And they're mostly young people. The people that I see die in untimely death are usually in their 20s and 30s. And that's a real gamble to say, well, I don't really care what happens when I die. And to take that gamble and just mortgage that everlasting life for this life, that's a foolish decision. There was actually a a thing that I read about in the paper. There was a guy who, he murdered his wife and he, he decapitated her. He cut her head off. He left the body at home, put the head in his car. This is so bizarre. And he's driving down the highway, and he decides he's going to take his own life by, what a selfish guy. I mean, just guy's just out of it. Instead of taking his own life, he just, he goes on the highway, and he purposely finds a car that he can have a head-on collision with. He crashes, I think it was in Idaho, he crashes into the car head-on. Who was in the other car? A young mother and her daughter. Killed them both instantaneously, and he lives, of course. But this is, you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know if it's the wrong prescription the doctor's going to give you. You don't know if it's going to be a car accident. You don't know. We had an officer who got struck by lightning. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? So you just don't know. It's a foolish thing to think about just this life because this is not where it's at. Verse 26, he makes a powerful statement here. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers, and of the holy angels. There's a direct correlation here between your behavior towards Jesus here and in the afterlife. When he comes in glory, it's too, cha- it's too late to change your mind about him. It's kind of a shot across the bow to closet Christians, which, I don't know, if you've been a Christian for several years or more, it kind of becomes an oxymoron. How can you be a closet Christian that totally goes against what the Bible talks about? And I'm not trying to frighten new believers because when I became a new believer, I was a police officer for a few years. I had my peers, and I was timid. You know, I went on the force, and I would maybe bring the Bible in during the break to read, and the guys would tease me. (laughs) They'd call me Father Joe or Holy or all kinds of stuff. And I would get a little timid, and then I wouldn't bring the Bible in, and then I'd get a little bit more bold, then I'd bring it. And this kind of went on for a little while until the Lord strengthened me in my faith. You're kind of going to go through that phase, but you've got to pray, Lord, give me boldness. Let me not be afraid of what other people think about me. And you know what? Years later, there's not a guy on the force who doesn't have a problem, who has a problem with what I'm doing. They all support me. So it, it, there's definitely been fruit to it, and it's paid off. As a matter of fact, they'll come to me secretly if something tragic happens in their life, and they'll talk to me, make sure no other officers are looking, but they'll take me aside and talk to me about their problems and what does the Bible say. So... It's kind of a good thing there. But we're also not radicals. You know, we're not, Jesus isn't telling us to be radical. You know, I don't want to frighten new Christians to think they've got to do all these radical things. Uh, and look, we're going to talk about different things here. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily scriptural, and I don't think that if Jesus was here again in bodily form that he would say, hey, let's do this. I don't believe in going to abortion clinics and holding up placards of pictures, graphic pictures of bloody fetuses and shouting at people. I really don't think that Jesus would do that. Pastor Lloyd said that a better way than that is to actually go and, and go to the person who's there walking in and, and give him your phone number and say, listen, I'm a Christian. If you need somebody to talk to, here, give, here's my phone number. Give me a call. That's a better way. I think that's more of the Jesus way. And also, it doesn't mean, though, that we shouldn't vote our conscience. It doesn't mean that if somebody supports things that are, radically against what the Bible says, that we shouldn't vote against it. We should. Or write our congressman. But what is our behavior? Our behavior should always be to attract people to the Lord. We're supposed to reflect the light of Christ. Also, you ever see these people at uh, this new thing now, this supposed Christian group at military funerals. They hold up placards that say, uh, good, another dead soldier. You ever see that in the news? These people are out of their minds. 
Uh, I mean, it's really horrible. He's grieving families, and they're holding up these placards about how God hates soldiers. And then they, they intermix placards that say, and God hates gays. What does gays have to do with military funerals? I don't know. But the bottom line is that God loves soldiers, God loves gay people, and God loves those girls who go to abortion clinics who think they have no way out but to go there. God loves them all. That's why he died for their sins. But unfortunately, we lived in a, a polarized and extremist society where it doesn't seem like a balance exists anymore. Okay, in the next section, we're going to see that Jesus is transfigured before James, John, and Peter. The word transfigure is found in Matthew's gospel. The Greek word is metamorpho, which is almost a direct transliteration to metamorphosis, where we get in the English. And again, it means to change form. This is another literal glimpse of the glory of the Lord while on earth in the in embodiment of Jesus Christ. So verse 27, he says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 26, Jesus speaks of his coming glory, and here he seems to be advising the three that some or all of them won't die until they see the kingdom of heaven. What's he referring to? Well, the, the logical look into the scripture is that uh, the next verse tells us about the transfiguration. So it seems to be that the, you see actually the glory of the Lord, the glory of God, the kingdom of heaven, the way Jesus uh, changes form. But others even believe that this could be a reference to the apocalypsis or the book of Revelation, the, the, the unveiling of Jesus Christ that John sees the last disciple and he writes it down in the book of Revelation. Because in John 21, this is after the resurrection, Jesus meets up again with his disciples and he says to Peter, Peter's a little concerned because, you know, Jesus says something and he's, he's concerned that they're all going to die, but John is going to remain and see the, the glory of, of God before he dies. You know, Peter always had to ask those questions. So Jesus says in John 21, what is it to you if he remains till I come? So some believe that this is referring specifically to John's uh, seeing of Jesus Christ. In verse 28, it says, And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So here again, we see again that he takes just the three. 29, And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Then behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah. So this is his metamorphosis or alteration of his form. And Matthew's gospel actually adds that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Now, why is, what's the thing with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Why are they included here in this transfiguration? Uh, why are they with him, talking to him? Well, remember, Moses' face shone brightly after communing with God. Remember in Exodus 34, 29 through 35, that after Moses was all day speaking to the Lord, that the, some of the glory or must have come, you know, been reflected off of Moses. And when Moses came down the mountain, his face shone really bright and it frightened the people. They were, they were like taken back by it. So whenever Moses was done talking to the Lord and came down off the mountain, he would wear a veil so it wouldn't frighten the people. Again, you can read that in Exodus 34. But the difference here is Moses reflected the glory of the Lord. However, Jesus, as the light of the world, was the source of the glory. Big difference here. Moses reflected it, but Jesus here is the source of that glory. Moses and Elijah both saw some of God's glory also. There's a lot of similarities here. If you remember, there was a, uh, they would see God's glory, but not his complete glory. It would be like an afterglow or a partial glory. Why not all his glory? Because in this sinful state, we, it doesn't reconcile with the full glory of who God is. I shudder when I hear people say, well, if I was to talk to God, I'd like to have an audience with him. He should come down right now and I'll talk to him. Let me tell you something. If he did that, you'd be toast. If God came down in his complete glory, we would, we'd be done. We'd be crispy critters. So it's kind of a foolish thing to say. You know, people could only handle parts of, of God's glory, but not the full effect of it. Other similarities, reasons uh, for the two to be with Jesus is, one, Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets, and both of which spoke of the Christ. Jesus fulfilled both. 
Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it. Um, when, when I'm in the car and I take a, a, a long drive, I put the iPod in, and I have like the Old Testament on, you know, the whole Bible on iPod. And I listen, I've been, I finished Exodus, now I'm in Leviticus. Some of you are going, oh, Leviticus. But when you really get into Leviticus, man, the Old Testament makes so much more sense. I mean, the, the sacrifices, the picture of Jesus, the priesthood, the lambs, the, uh, the, the ransom money. There's so much in the Old Testament. It'll just, the, similar, the types will just blow you away. So Jesus fulfilled, of course, the prophets is an easy one. The prophets all spoke about the coming Messiah. So that was a, a, an easy one for him to fulfill. But the law also spoke of the coming Messiah. In the Old Testament, the word for atonement was kofar in the Hebrew, which just meant a covering. In the New Testament, the word is the same word atonement, but it actually has a different meaning. It, it, you know, Jesus, when he atoned for our sins, the, in the Old Testament, it can only, the blood of the animals could only cover the people for a time being, cover their sins. But Jesus' sacrifice once and for all allows us to be fully reconciled with God. And number two, nobody saw Moses die. God buried him. That's also in uh, Deuteronomy 34. You can read that. Nobody saw Elijah die either. As a matter of fact, in 2 Kings 2, Elisha sees him get uh, taken up in chariots of fire. They kind of, I don't know, that must have been a wild sight to see. Chariots and and horses, whatever, and Elijah is just taken up in in that chariots of fire in that whirlwind, and he goes up to God. So nobody saw him die either. Both men, number three, both men did, did great miracles. They were both highly revered, and both of them had lapses of confidence. Moses was terrified to speak in front of the people, and God tried to take away all his excuses. Okay, you don't want to talk, you, you stutter, you have a problem speaking, let Aaron talk for you, but you're still going. You know? And Elijah, after that great victory at Mount Carmel, was terrified when he found out that Queen Jezebel was going to kill him. He ran and ran and ran and ran, and God said, what are you doing here? You don't belong here, you belong back there. So these, these guys both had lapses of confidence, and it shows their humanness, which is awesome. And also, it appears that both of them may be coming back in the future in Revelation 11, when it talks about the two witnesses. Two witnesses are going to come back, they're going to do great miracles, um, and you know, they're going to be representations uh, for God. Verse 31, it says that, starting with 30, it says, Behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. How does glory and decease appear in the same thought? It sounds kind of contradictory. What is glorious about him dying? Well, let me read a periodical. It's Voice of the Martyrs, May 2006 uh, article. They always have these stories about Christian martyrs, uh, historical accounts of Christian martyrs. And this has to do with the Silitan martyrs of 180 A.D. The interesting thing in the Roman Empire was there would be an emperor that would come on the scene and get really perturbed that the Christians didn't worship them as a god. They were okay. Some of them were okay with them worshiping Jesus as God, but they also wanted to be worshipped, and the Christians wouldn't do it. So there would be persecutions. And then another emperor would come and kind of back off on the persecution. And then another guy would come, and it would start up again. So it would go back and forth for several centuries. But... The article says this, the year was 180 A.D., and Marcus Aurelius, the ruler of the Roman Empire, had just died. His son Commodus took the throne, and Vigelis Saturninus, the North African proconsul, intensified a crackdown on Christians. So there was a sacrifice that they wanted them to do, and the Christians wouldn't do it. They wanted them to worship the emperor, and the Christians wouldn't do it. So what happened was, eventually, these 12 uh, Christians were beheaded. And this is the response. People had mixed reactions about the martyrdom, but they believed that this happened in an honorable way to complete a life of commitment to Christ. In North Africa, the phrase, may you gain your crown, became a common greeting, and many began to honor the days fellow Christians were martyred. A man named Tertullian was greatly impacted by the Silitan martyrs. He was not yet a believer when the Silitan martyrs were beheaded. However, their example was the grounds for his conversion. He would later become a leader in the church and claimed their deaths hastened the spread of Christianity throughout North Africa. He is known for the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Pretty amazing stuff. So glory, decease. Well, Jesus was our example. We learn from his example. He was faithful 
and obedient to the end, to God. And that's where we get our example from. People, this life is only a proving ground. This isn't, this isn't something where we eat, drink, and be merry, where we you know, party today and tomorrow and who knows how long we have. That's not what we have life for. This life is a proving ground. It's, we either have faith and obedience to God to the very end or we live a selfish life and you know, the fate is, is pretty bad. But uh, again, Jesus was our example. Verse 32, it says, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. The interesting thing that I take out of this is they spent all night, or they were supposed to be uh, Spending all night in prayer kind of reminds you of something, doesn't it? The Garden of Gethsemane, he also brought the, t- the three with him, and they end up falling asleep. And this is the, the, night before, the night that Jesus is captured. He really needed them to be with him, and they fell asleep on him again. So they kind of had a little pattern going there. But why is that? Why do these disciples keep having problems staying awake and praying all night? Well, do we have, sometimes have a problem doing that, praying for long periods of time? I used to think I was a terrible Christian, until I read this book called Effective Prayer Life by Chuck Smith. He kind of explains the whole thing about prayer and how it affects our, our, our nature. He says this on page 102. You may say, I just don't have time to pray. Do you have time to watch TV? We have time to do the things we really want to do. Therefore, God must assume that we really don't want to fellowship with him. And that's a correct assumption. Our flesh rebels against prayer because it's an exercise of the spirit. That is why I get so tired as soon as I start to pray. I say, I'm too sleepy, Lord. My flesh is rebelling against the spiritual exercise of prayer. The spirit and flesh are always warring against each other. Whenever I enter enter into spiritual exercise, my flesh rebels against it. I find any excuse possible. I'm too upset to pray, or I'm too weak to pray, or I'm too hungry to pray, or there's a whole million reasons why we have a problem and we say that we can't pray. I often actually ask God, well, I start to pray, and, you know, my shift ends at 12.30. Now, I'm on the road. There's really no distractions because there's no cars on the road. And I live in a rural area, so, you know, maybe a deer will jump out every once in a while, but there's no distractions. And I'm driving down the road, and I'm praying. And I start talking. I'm talking to the Lord, and then I stop talking, and I talk to him in my mind. And then I think about what I have to do tomorrow and, you know, how pretty my wife's garden is, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And then I say to myself, I'm supposed to be praying. So a lot of times when I pray, I'll say, Lord, help me to focus. Lord, I'm getting distracted. You really have to ask the Lord to draw you in, to pull you back in so that you can, you know, have that fellowship with him. It is an exercise of the spirit, and it is part of us rebels against that. So going back to the the scripture here, there's a tabernacle that uh, Peter wants to make. Now, if you look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was a portable temple. It was prior to the temple. It was was portable. You know, they could set it up, and then they could take it down when they moved forward, right? Uh, And this is where the children of Israel would meet God in this tabernacle. There would be the Holy of Holies and the Shekinah glory, and God said, there would be a part of me that would physically dwell there uh, so the children of Israel could meet me at at that place. Okay, verse 34 It says, while he was saying this, while Peter was saying this about the tabernacles, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And we've heard that before. We also know that in the, again, it all goes back to the Old Testament, right? A lot of these pictures become clear to us when we understand, have a good grasp of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would follow the children of Israel at night by a pillar of fire. And wherever the pillar of fire was, the children of Israel would go towards it. When the pillar of fire stopped, that was an indication for them to stop and set up camp. During the day, it was a pillar of smoke or a cloud. Same thing. The children of Israel would follow that in, in, in the wandering, and then when the, the, the cloud stopped, the children of Israel would stop and set up camp. So here we have a cloud and we have a voice. And basically, he's, he's saying, uh, hey, Peter, be quiet. I didn't ask for your input. 
Here, my son, this is what you should be focusing on. A few lessons that we can learn from this. Number one, sometimes we just have to shut up and listen to God. That's a good lesson for us to learn. There's too many people on the planet devising all kinds of ways to get to God, and it's kind of a picture of religion. Lord, let me build these tabernacles. Lord, let me build something with my own hands. Let me contribute. You know, let me uh, donate. Let me do something to facilitate our relationship. Let me work towards my salvation. Well, you can't do that because it's already been finished. Jesus says it is finished. What's been done to reconcile man to God has already been done on the cross. Any good works that we do now is an overflow of joy and the spirit in our heart. So be quiet and listen to God. Two, God chose not to limit himself anymore to the Holy of Holies in the temple. Remember, there was part of the tabernacle. There's a special room, the Holy of Holies. Same thing in the temple, same model. The Ark of the Covenant was in there, and God's, uh, part of God's uh, physical dwelling would dwell on top of that uh, mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, covenant. And once a year, the priest would go in and, and sprinkle the blood before the mercy seat, and God would accept the sacrifice and atone for the sins of the children of Israel. Okay, But God is saying, not anymore. Now, I don't dwell in the Holy of Holies. I dwell in bodily form as the Messiah. As a matter of fact, there's an exchange in John 14, 8 through 10, with Philip and Jesus. Philip goes, goes, Lord, just show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus' response to him was, Philip, have you not been with me so long that you, you haven't seen the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He's making it very clear. Jesus is that physical representation of God on earth. And three, this was a little bit of a bad call on Peter's part because the tabernacle was where the glory of the Lord dwelt. And actually, out of the three, only Jesus was divine, not Moses and Elijah. Sure, they were you know, probably in some type of glorified state, but they were not divine. Only Jesus was divine. Bad call on Peter's part. <laughs> he probably would have been better off saying, let me build one tabernacle for you. So be careful not to elevate anyone to God level, God's level. I think that's the, uh, that's the lesson here. And that's kind of, kind of tough because we live in a society of idolization and celebrity status. And, you know, you can see the Hollywood people. They, they, people practically worship them. They, I see some of these, uh, you know, concerts, like on TV, like there's a concert, Michael Jackson or somebody in Tokyo. I remember that one. I'll never forget what that one. And these people were screaming and trampling each other and, and, and having pictures of him and, you know, it's, it's nice to think that you, you, know, you have an artist that you like to listen to, but it's just, it's idolization. And what do they think of Jesus? It's, it's sad. It's tragic. That's where the world is. And unfortunately, sometimes that carries over in Christianity. Sometimes we end up talking about people so much, maybe our favorite pastors or worship people or whatever, and we talk about them more than we talk about Jesus. And that's, you've got to get, bring it back in. <laughs> one tabernacle, Jesus Christ, he's the only one who's divine. On the converse, never, never elevate yourself or let anyone else elevate you to his level. It, and that's kind of tough to do when people are saying, oh, he did a great job and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it, hey, that's great. The Lord's really blessed me with this talent. I have a pretty good memory. I can memorize a lot of things. And I have to tell myself when people say, wow, I just remember that and that. And I say, you know what? The Lord's blessed me with a good memory. All it takes is one aneurysm and I can lose all that memory. Think about that. One aneurysm. Right? It's the truth. Um, or about maybe 15 years and, you know, going into my midlife, then I could lose the memory there. It's very easy to lose. So verse 36 says, so which of these, oops, I'm in the wrong spot here. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Matthew's gospel says that they were also commanded not to tell anyone these things until, you know, Jesus rises again, until after the resurrection. They were speechless. This was so amazing that they couldn't talk about it. It kind of reminds me of Paul's vision in 2 Corinthians 12.4, when he speaks about whether in the spirit, I don't know, was, I, was, I, was it literal, was I in the spirit? But he was shown this incredible vision, and he said uh, of paradise, the third heaven, He said, he heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Speechless. Also, the seven thunders in Revelation. 
Many of you have heard of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls or vials. How many of you have heard the seven thunders? Those of you who are good students of the Bible remember that the seven thunders uttered and John was about to write down what they uttered as he did with the other judgments and he was told, stop, it's not lawful for you to write that. So we don't know what the seven thunders uttered. We'll probably find out when we get to heaven. But, you know, speechless. So the question is, why the transfiguration? Well, we saw last Sunday where Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And then he said to the disciples, who do you, more importantly, who do you say that I am? And I asked, who do you, Christian, who are you sitting there in the audience say that Jesus Christ is? And that's why we went through the whole biblical Jesus, so we understand who he is. We have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, But here you see the physical manifestation following his words. So last week we we saw the the understanding vocally about who he is, biblically and scripturally. And here we see they get a visual manifestation, kind of like a a complementation of that. So it it was a, you know, we're we're visual people, an ocular, uh, sensory uh, complementation of of his glory. But also this could have been... uh, for Jesus, just as well as it was for the disciples. If you're going to ask me to explain 100% and fully how Jesus is fully God and fully man, I can't. People ask me to explain the Trinity. I can tell you biblically and tell you what I think based on those biblical lines, but if we knew everything about God and all the mysteries about God, then he wouldn't be God. It's foolish for us to think, and beware of people who tell you that they can answer all of your questions. They know everything about the Bible. They know everything about God. That's not true because God still has some secrets and mysteries that are reserved for him that we'll know in due time if he chooses to teach us those things. But this could have been for Jesus. It could have been like, uh, it's a poor example, but it's the best one I could think of. It's like when you get up in the morning and sleeping all night in one position and you get a good stretch and the blood's flowing and you just feel good and you're ready to start the day. It's like Jesus was able to somehow have the, the, the divine part of him just come out. And his face shone, and his, his clothes were changed, and he was so bright, and it just blew people away. It was like maybe an, another form of, um, you know, reassurance and you know, help him to when he goes to the cross. He, he kind of needed that. They needed to see it. So that, that's what we can say about that. Um, the glory of the Lord, what is it? Well, the glory, the word for glory in Hebrew is chabad, which literally means weight or substance. And God has substance and importance. He's the most important thing in the universe. We live in a theater. Think about this. We live in a theater of make-believe. And going as a police officer, I've seen more dead people than I care to, to talk about. And you kind of get used to it after a while. But there's an obvious difference between somebody who's alive and somebody who's dead. What we have, what you see, is just a shell. This is just a shell. When we die, the, the part of us that's eternal comes out of that shell. And the, the shell just kind of decomposes like the skin on a snake. The real part of us is what's inside. It's the spirit. It's, it's, it's going to live eternally whether you like it or not. If you think you're going to die and cease to exist, i got bad news for you. You're going to exist. You're going to be conscious. And it's going to be in a good place for eternity or it's going to be in a bad place. So the physical world really has no substance. Scientists can't figure out what holds a bunch of positively charged protons in the nucleus of an atom of every cell of your body and the universe, there's atoms, everything's comprised of atoms. And, you know, they say, well, the protons, uh, there's a strong nuclear force, they call it, that holds the protons in the nucleus, right? But Coulomb's principle tells us that those protons should be coming apart. So there's, there's, there's an, another law that takes over. The third thing is there's a weak nuclear, nuclear force that has to do with the breakdown of the atom. It's, it's the cause of radioactivity. It's the weak nuclear force. But the electromagnetic force really holds the electrons over the uh, nucleus. So we have all these laws that hold everything together, but they're really held together precariously. And the Bible says that in him, in Jesus Christ, all things consist. And the Greek word is sunastia, which means everything is held together. So we really, we should thank God every day for another breath, that our atoms aren't just taken apart, going, you know, and we just kind of explode. All right, and I I had to just say that example. I don't know why. (laughs) But the bottom line is this isn't the real world. Um, I want to read one more scripture, and then we'll wrap it up. It's Haggai 2, 6 through 9. He says this, the prophet Haggai says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more it is a little while 
I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. The desire of all nations was a euphemism for the Messiah, and early rabbinical writings always attested this as a messianic scripture. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And actually before that, he says, he says in, in uh, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? The climate at the time was in the tabernacle, right, when God said to make the Holy of Holies, that special room that he would dwell, right? When the temple came, the, the permanent building, what happened was they still had a Holy of Holies where God dwelt. And it was Solomon's temple was glorious. People talk about it. They actually make, um, based on the scripture, they actually make little models of what Solomon's temple looked like. Now, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and destroyed it. They utterly destroyed Solomon's temple and, and pillaged it. So another temple was built many years later under the Persians. The Persians had favor on the Jews, and they sent the Jews back to their homeland to rebuild the temple, right? Except the people really weren't into building the temple because they got a lot of oppression from uh, the Samaritans, and they, you know, they started building their own houses, and they really could care less that much about building God's temple. And God kind of got a little irritated with them and would send prophets over there to wake them up and say, you build houses for yourself, what about me? Meaning God. So the people built this temple and it wasn't, it was really not much to it. Now, in the scripture, God is saying that the glory of the latter temple will be much greater than the former temple. Well, how could that be when God himself is saying, is it not as nothing in your eyes? The answer is, from the time of the Persians, when they rebuilt the second temple until Messiah, the prince, right? Jesus came and inhabited that temple. When he walked into that temple, he was the glory of the Lord. And that's what the whole thing here is about, the glory of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the rabbinical Talmud says that the Shekinah glory, God's physical presence, never came back to the second temple. So where could the glory be? The only answer is the Messiah, as God in the flesh walked into that temple several times, many times, that was the glory of the Lord. So uh, and one other thing I want to say is that at the end of this month, we're going to have a guest speaker. His name is Stan Telchin. I spoke before about it. He wrote a book called Betrayed and another book called Abandoned. A Jewish man who sends his daughter off to college. She becomes a Christian. He flips out. And he sets off on this journey to disprove Jesus once and for all. And through history and the Bible and much prayer, he becomes a Christian himself. And this guy's been telling us his testimony for years. So he'll be here Wednesday night, the last Wednesday of July. But what the truth is, what he learned was that God in the flesh interrupting human history to save our sins was the glory of the Lord. And I ask any of you listeners, anybody out there, to be honest with yourselves. And if you're not a believer, go on that same quest as Sam, uh, Stan Telchin. It's a very important thing to do because if you really want to know the truth and you pray and you search the scriptures, God will reveal himself to you. Homeland to rebuild the temple, right? Except the people really 